is destroyed nonchalance. Taking culture apart one episode at a time. A social commentary podcast on pop culture, fashion, film, and music. This week, Rick, Serena, and I are talking about understanding identity. Hello, welcome to Destroyed Nonchalance. Last week we met up in Paris for a birthday celebration, and this week we're scattered throughout the UK and overcoming some technical difficulties to chat by Skype. Paris, didn't we? Um, And then a few days later, uh, I went to Brussels to support my cousin on her birthday and her friends. It was it was a nice time. There was eight of us that went away, and we went to Brussels and kind of ate waffles. Ah, waffles. Yeah, it was really nice. Um, Looked around a couple of museums, a cathedral, kind of tied ourselves out. It was just like, just for one day, we didn't stay or anything. We left early. Yeah, we left early and then came back like at around 10 o'clock, so that was good. Have you been to Brussels before? I did years ago with school. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, so I hadn't been back since. Have you been before? Have we been to Brussels? Was that on our stop, Rick? I, I've been to Brussels. You haven't. Oh, oh we, okay. Troy, Troy has switched trains at the train station at Brussels. And we, I think, came, came out um, real quick to see what was outside the station. But that was it. Yeah. Okay. So we had to make a better trip back. But, well, that sounds nice. Um, any museum highlights? From the Brussels um, trip? It was funny because I went into one of the Catholic churches and I love stuff like that. I mean, the rest of them, the rest of the people I was with, they weren't really into it. So, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I ended up like walking around and like lighting a candle. And, and it's funny because you have to pay to kind of yeah. get a candle. I've noticed that. <laughs> yeah, and then. I was and then I, for that. <laughs> yes, me too. And then I walked around the corner. And then there was like a cordoned off bit and it had like these really nice um, like paintings. But it said you have to pay two euros to actually go in and have a look. And this was like the oh. Catholic Church. And I thought, wow, you know, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> that's different, you know, when they're trying to um, promote Jesus and, you know. Did you pay to go and look at the paintings? No, 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 I didn't. No, okay. because when I turned around, I was the only one like walking around. And they were, like, at the front door wanting to, like, walk, <laughs> to, to, like, you know, experience the rest of the city. But um... They were trying not to catch fire, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a great place. It's a nice city to have a look around. In. It's a European city. I mean, it gives you everything. You know, the old buildings, um, lots of um, monuments and... Good food. Did lots you see of the tourists. Did you see the little angel, the the little baby taking a pee? Found? Oh yes, the pissing <laughs> verta. Is it the pissing verta they call it? Yeah, the pissing. I found that weird. The pissing what? Yeah, the pissing version. <laughs> it is. Weird. It's like this pissing um, cherub, but okay. it's a little baby pissing. Okay. <laughs> like in a waterfall, and it's like, I don't know, it's so weird, and I found it weird. It's like a little dark cherub having a piss everywhere, and it's like, I don't know, I just find it weird, to be honest. It's kind of weird. And we went into this pub, and it was so dark and dingy, and it had all these mannequins, 
that were like Everything? dressed up, si- si- yeah, mannequins like sitting on seats oh. and large puppets like oh, in creepy. rows. Yeah, I'll send you some pictures. It was so <laughs> weird. Like, and these mannequins were like red eyes. No way. I mean, You're yeah, no, I'm not. It was really weird. And they were like, oh yeah, and the rest of them were like, oh yeah, let's sit and have a cup of tea. But I just felt <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> also, it had um, the city's nice because it reminded me of what I think Berlin is like because it had graffiti and stuff everywhere. Oh, and really? like, okay. yeah, which was really interesting to read and have a look at some of the messages. So. Yeah, that was good. Um, came back really tired. Um, yeah, and I've relaxed, so that's good. But before then, actually, I should have said I went to Vogue, well, Condé Nast offices. Oh, that's right. I completely yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. That what was, was that uh, like? Amazing. It was really good. I was really, I think I was maybe overexcited more than my cousin. I mean, my cousin, we were, I was sitting there, met these two lovely girls that worked in Condé Nast and we were talking about you know, the event that we're going to be putting on. Right. On October the 16th, that's when it's going to be put on. And uh, they were talking about Edward Anunfall, and I was like, oh, yeah, he's great. And I was like, I'm so excited. I went to Central St. Martins and all this. And then my cousin was like, who's Edward? Who's Edward? And I was like... (laughs) (laughs) It's just the world. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, and all of us were like, oh, my God, Charlene. And we told her, and she was like, oh, yeah, 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 the black one, the black guy. Okay, I know who you mean. So, yeah, that was really, <laughs> so that was like really interesting, you know, that um, just through her passion, it's kind of got her, you know, it's got me and her into, like, Condé Nast, and it's kind of a dream of mine, and the place is just amazing. It's amazing. And for her, it's just another place where she's doing a talk about coding. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the girls are really nice. So it's nice to kind of got, like, contacts, you know, at Condé Nast. Yeah. Now, when you say nice, do you mean, like, polite? Or did you feel like they were relatable? Relatable. Really nice girls. Really, really nice girls. And, oh, my gosh, I think I was probably overexcited. And they were, like, showing me, like, storyboards, you know, because I was acting so excited. They were oh, showing wow. me story. Yeah, storyboards, because they do... Um, the website for Vogue. Ah, okay. For Condé, okay. Yeah, for Condé Nest. And I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And they were showing me the boards. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've done stuff like this before. And I was just, like, yeah. verbalizing everything. I couldn't help it. I don't know if I was too excited, but it was it was amazing. And, yeah, they were all dressed casually, by the way. Wearing flats? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I know you two were saying, I can't believe you're wearing flats to, like, Condé Nast, but honestly, they were all just like, look, they just look like us, really, just like working in this really nice place right on the river. So, yeah, it's good. I wonder if it's more of a, a British folk that's like that, or if media has just hyped up what to expect, or if American folk is really like, you have to have the high heels to and Yeah, yeah, and the devil's wear, the devil wears Prada. I think that has probably a lot to do with it. You know, the way the American Vogue is. But the British Vogue, I mean, maybe the Vogue house is different to, because I was at ah. Condé Nast, you see. Right, so right. So who knows, maybe they do wear high heels. It's more of like the fashion image. <laughs> uh, but yeah. I was I was reading Grace Coddington's biography, and she was describing the difference between British Vogue and American Vogue. But that was oh, back yeah. Hey, I thought it might have changed. And she said that... British Vogue, everyone was like more hands-on. Um, it was a smaller team, and it didn't come with all the pretense. They didn't right. work under those kind of conditions. How did you come out of it? Like, does it does it rev you up your enthusiasm for? Oh, absolutely, like absolutely. That? 
Absolutely. It, it totally rubs me up. And it doesn't feel so far away, you know, actually just going into the building and meeting people that work there. It doesn't feel so like, oh, yeah, that's like a dream. Right. You know, it, it kind of offers possibilities and opportunities. And, and even... You know, if nothing happens, I've made some really nice contacts, met some nice people. You know, I'll be going again in October. That's right. Yeah, which is really good because that's what I've been doing today is putting together a poster um, about the event. And I, I mean, I don't know about you two, but I have given, I've like applied for jobs. I've applied, applied, applied. And you just don't hear anything. But yeah. being able to kind of walk over the threshold and just meet some nice people. And, you know, it's... I've like met an editor, you know, it's like amazing. It really is. And they were, and they were also saying, but um, when we met the editor, um, Daniel Wolf, he was saying, uh, um, the girl that for Dorma, she was saying, Oh, can we get Edward to do an introductory video for the talk? And David and Daniel was like, maybe actually, because he's really interested in diversity, but we'll ask him and see what he says. So, right. Oh, that would be amazing. That would be, you could be there for the filming of it. You could have like, yeah, a, oh my god, <laughs> that would be like yes, I'm there, <laughs> and I need my team. <laughs> I need Charlie. I need Rick. They need oh. to be here. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> right. That would, oh, would. That would. <laughs> that would be amazing. So what have you two? What you, what have you two been up to? So we we did go to the movies and we stopped Pain and Glory. Have you oh, heard about that? the movie? No. It's a Pedro Almodovar movie. Mm-hmm. It's with uh, Penelope Cruz and Antonio Banderas. Yeah, this one is like somewhat autobiographical, or at least is influenced by his life. But I guess it's a bit of a different experience for Troy because he has to read the subtitles, and I know Spanish, so oh, I can right. yeah. I can watch it. Um, yeah, and understand. I always wonder that if people can understand, but, who know the language, can understand it better. It is a bit taboo, but the way that he does these taboo subjects in, in all of his movies, are it, it's, it works really uh, and and he's pretty fearless. Um, he makes it so really I, innocent. I, you have this kid, he's eight or nine years old, and he sees another guy, like, taking a, a shower in his house. This guy's coming over to paint the kitchen every day. And so one time he just strips and takes a shower. And the little kid experiences this. He watches it, and all of a sudden he almost passes out. Yeah, the little kid, he breaks into a sweat. He almost passes out, and his mother's like, oh, I think he's sick. <laughs> and the little kid is like, I don't know what's going on, but this this scene that I just saw like overwhelmed me. He, the director approaches it in such a way that it makes it seem very innocent. He strips it of all like the dangerous, all the connotations that could be there, and you just kind of see it all from like the point of view of a child, like eight or nine years old. And it doesn't like nothing happens to the kid, and I mean, there's no like interaction or anything. I think the guy just becomes like a crush. In this next segment, we describe our understandings of identity, what we mean by identity presentation and identity performance. What we would do is one, describe what we think of as identity and then kind of naturally lead into how a pop culture example illustrates your points about identity and how you think of it. Identity and talking about the subject, it's, it's intimidating for me 
And um, whenever Troy sent out the the info about what we're going to talk about, I, I don't know if I'm going to. I'm, I'm mainly going to be coloring my my view on how I see identity from from my end. I I'm not really going to be connecting it to what the scholars are saying. And I think that when when you say Tell me about identity. That's a little intimidating. Does it too. sound too abstract or yeah. too theoretical? Yeah. To me, okay. I think you have to live in that academic world a bit. No, I'd be really interested to hear just what you think of as identity. Because yeah, I expect I mean, it to be different. I, I connect identity with groups or subcultures. Um, as far as how a lot of people identify themselves, so I've kind of always seen myself outside or on the edges of those groups. Right. Um, but I mean, I, I guess that on itself can be an identity. And I guess I, I am a sample of many elements that can make a, a, a clear identity in my view. For example, I'm on the edges of being a gamer. I'm not like full on gamer. I like two or three games and that's, that's it. I'm not, you know, like, uh, Playing RPGs all day long, um, I, I I stay limited amounts of that. I I enjoy superhero stuff, but again, limited amounts. I'm not very into comics, but there are like three or four titles that I enjoy, like you know, Why the Last Man or Persopolis or even some like buff comic. But those are like I I sample in in different groups and different. Uh, I guess different groups where people like fully jump in and that's their identity. I'm like a, I'm a geek or I'm a gamer or I'm a comic, uh, comic person. So where they're probably like endorsing a label. Yeah. Wearing a label. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't, I don't want to be in one box. Um, right. So like, like with, you know, like with pop culture, like I haven't gone super deep into going into conventions or being a regular at Comic-Con, which is is identities I see that can overtake you. And that's, oh, like, right. that's your life. Like, you live your life and you work so that you can feed that. You can, like, live in that identity and that's it. Like, outside of that, outside of the convention or doing cosplay or whatever, that you're, you're, you're just regular nine-to-five person. So I, I always see identity as connected to a large group, a large subculture. Right. Um, and I always, like, I'm on the edges. I know people that are, like, I knew people that are goths and that were, like, emos and that identity, but I never did the full dress-up and, and did the makeup and all of that. Um, right. So I, I can coexist, I guess, with the different identities that I see, and I can take elements of those that I like and leave other elements that I don't like. Um, and and I guess that connects with um, the characters that I like in pop culture and the characters that I feel connected to. Um, one big example right. is um, it's um, I like characters that give you the unexpected because that's, that's, I guess, how I try to be. Uh, so Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Buffy Summers, she doesn't fit right. the she doesn't fit the role. She bends the, the role. She's you know the blonde cheerleader role that the blonde girl that gets killed 
um, at the end of the movie or throughout the movie, she actually flips that on its head and she's, you know, when she's, uh, she's going into a, an, an alley and a vampire is like, oh, I'm going to get her. And she turns around and kicks his, kicks his ass. And, um, you know, she, she turns that role and that identity that culture has put the blonde cheerleader in. Uh, right. Is, you know, you're going to get killed. Uh, it turns it on its head and she. So she has like the perky haircut. She has like the cheerleader look, but she plays against the whole like flaky type. Yeah. Yeah, she becomes the heroine, and and she has a lot of like different uh, different things to her that you wouldn't expect. But once you get to know them, you see all of the different uh, elements of her identity, and it's not elements you wouldn't expect so much. Uh, so you know, other people that I guess can can fit into this type of. Uh, person is like Starbucks from Battlestar Galactica, where it's not, she's kind of like the hero anti-hero, where one yeah. week you'll be uh, really mad at her, or one week you'll be rooting for her, and it's that complex, that complex character identity that I, I guess, you know, some characters don't get, and it's not their fault, you know, some characters on TV, it's just the way that they're written, but I like that it's that just complex, more human uh, right. person. And, right. you know, we, we've seen it in, like, shows like Glow, Orange, Orange is the New Black, where you have identity stereotypes. You have, like, uh, the Russian or, like, the welfare queen, and um, you have all of those identities, but... So these are characters from Glow. When the like, show... Yeah, when the show portrays them, you get the unexpected and buried, and you really get to see this person. So I like when shows and when in pop culture, those uh, identity roles are broken down. Yeah, because you were talking about the characters that don't break the unexpected. They just kind of play the same role, the same role. This character is very similar to this one and they don't break the mold in any way. And they, they end up not surprising you because again, it's confirming over and over again, what it is that they're supposed to do. You, they look a certain way. They're supposed to act a certain way. And then they encounter a certain fate and it doesn't open up any new possibilities. But what you're describing is like for Buffy, they open up new possibilities. They stop performing and repeating and confirming the same behavior, the same mold compliance over and over again. And it's fresh because they're not completely off the wall. They're not insane, but what they done is kind of brought in and uh, opened up new channels for understanding what their own options are, what their own choices are, and starting to, it's almost like a pearl in the oyster. Um, yeah. Somebody's thrown a, a grain of sand in there, but then a really interesting character develops around the new mutation, the new possibility. Now the blonde girl doesn't die at the end of the, the horror movie. She starts out by kicking horror's ass, and she's killing vampires, and she comes out in like a really dominant way. And so she's more complex, and she challenges like the overall narrative. Right? Am I understanding what you're saying? You like those people who are opening up new channels. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm in when I have a strong female character that can kick ass. Um, and Joss Whedon has 
put up a lot of heroines uh, that do that and uh, a lot of other shows. And I mean, that's not to say that I don't like the characters that fit the role that they need to do. Like Agent Cooper is an FBI agent from Twin Peaks and that's, that's what he is. He behaves like you would expect an FBI agent to behave. And ah, oh, no, because he brings in that whole Tibetan mysticism and just almost like the embrace of chance and synchronicity and dream logic, which I don't think a lot of FBI people work with. But the fact that you can confront rationality and bureaucracy with that type of mystical thinking in order to open up what's possible, I think that's the grain of sand for him. And that's why he becomes a character that becomes more layered and breaks that stereotypical police, the clueless police guy, a hopeless bureaucracy person. Cooper is able to break with that because he expands what we think of as acceptable FBI agent behavior. No, uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a higher level take, but when you look at the basic elements, you know, the layman's terms, FBI agent, black suit, look back hair, you know, yeah. like um, the way that he talks to his little recorder, you know, like you think of an FBI agent uh, noting down details. And I mean, that's that's just looking at it, you know, on the surface. And I know there's like more to these characters, but, you know, you can look at Laura Palmer like she's the troubled teen that eventually escapes by dying and she escapes that identity. But, you know, you. I, I don't know, like, I guess I was just looking at these characters in a, at that surface level. Yeah, well, I think that David Lynch is really good about setting up the, that expectation. It gives you all the trappings of what a homecoming queen is going to look like when you just see her yeah. picture. Or how an FBI is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, he definitely opens up um, some, like, possi- new possibilities for the way we think of identity. And I think that that's the level of, you have to reinterpret it almost to see what these characters are bringing. And do you have any like models or theories that have shaped what you think of as identity and how you understand it? We did go over identity uh, when I was in my applied imagination uh, in the creative industries course. And right. one, one of the research symposiums that we did, um, identity was presented in this uh, in this pyramid shape, and this uh, this uh, small sentence contextualizes that identity. So um, right. this is what it is: you need energy to act somewhere. So the parts of this sentence are: um, you need energy. So energy is power, which is one corner of the pyramid. Uh, right. To to act, act is freedom which okay. is another part of that pyramid, and somewhere is location, which is the third part of that um, pyramid, and that's what makes up this, this identity pyramid. And um, there were two contexts which this pyramid can be seen through, and one is the old context and one is the new context. So, for example, um, you know... 18th century or before travel was so accessible, context one didn't really travel. So their identity was your village, your town, you never left it. Um, So you didn't really have the freedom to change your location. You didn't have the power to change 
that. So that context of your identity was within that hub. Um, right. As power and freedom became more available to more of the masses, you have context too. And that's the new identity that we have. And, you know, you're not so restricted to a location because you have more freedom and more power. Um, so right. there's, there's people that live in context one still, and there's right. people that live in context two still. And it's, um, it's that struggle that we're in, I guess, um, with politics and with everything. You have people wanting to go back. You have people wanting to move forward. And there's not a lot of mix of both um, types of thinking. So um, I, I, it's a very general way of saying, uh, you know, this very detailed presentation. But that's what I got off of it. And hopefully It sounds like... It sounds like to me, from my understanding, it sounds like a kind of a Goffman idea of presentation where you have a setting. So you're talking about place and you were talking about power um, and as energy. And what was the what was the third part of the triangle? It's power, freedom and location. And freedom. OK, because. I think of, when I think of identity, I think of like two general components or two different dimensions to it, uh, ways of looking at it. And that's presentation and performance. And presentation is um, contextual and one person, um, there's a continuity of self that is presented. And um, so the self puts on costumes. And, you know, I guess it would be in your triangle, the power to put on costumes and the power to select props and the power to select the setting. And then um, they would have, you know, this presentation in order to be understood socially. Does that make sense? Versus like the more performance idea, which is there's less of a continuity of self and continuity is maintained by reiterating utterances, the communications of yourself into being. And yeah, it does draw on power and it does draw on um, context. Imagining it around a triangle, to me, the triangle suggests uh, a continuity. Serena, what do you think of that? Those three sides of the triangle? Yeah, in it's terms really of what we... Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds interesting. I've not um, heard of it before, actually. And I'm interested in you say. Like the first, what did you say, Rick? Like the first one is like in the 18th century. So what's the second one again? If you can. Yeah, con context one is the the old civilization way mm -hmm. of being, and context two is the uh, 20th century, like now where where we are or where we're going. So it includes now and the future, yeah. I guess. Um, and I mean, you can imagine it, those can even be opened. So much more if we had, we're, we're still restricted by our planet, for example, or, you know, um, if, if we had the galaxy opened up, that would be a context three, for example, or, you know, you can continue to expand what our freedom and location mean, essentially. Yeah, it's interesting, because if, if you were to put that then in the 21st century, um, in terms of social media or something mm -hmm. and how your location can literally almost be anywhere 
in the world, yeah. anyone that's got Wi-Fi anyway. <laughs> and the freedom people have in being able to say what they want. What you're saying, and it really touches on what I think of when it comes to identity. And again, like for me, and this kind of touches on my research too, as identity presentation and performance. And, you know, presentation as everything that you can think of people as actors, everything that they roll, enroll into, like the fashion, the styling, the camera, the setting, everything that comes into presenting who they are. On the other side of that is performance, which is utterance that brings them into being. Those are two dimensions when it comes to identity, because we have Goffman, who's a big theorist when it comes to presentation. And it's all about, you can think of it in terms of the metaphor of the actor. The actor has to follow a schedule. The actor has to be on set. The, the actor has to wear a costume. And it's all about managing um, impressions and you know what you want the audience to think. Again, it's very social. With identity presentation, you have this actor. Then you can see uh, connected presentations and he builds up this almost like biography, an autobiography, and it accumulates. And it's like a personal recollection. But then performance is where you don't exist until you communicate. It's an utterance that brings you into being. For example, you have Instagram, like what I'm researching. You don't exist on Instagram until you utter yourself into being, until you say something, you announce yourself. And then you're there. If you don't do that, you don't exist. So you don't have an identity. So these are like two dimensions that I look at. So the first is presentation, the actual on the stage. But then you have this other consideration that in some networks, in some settings, you don't exist until you communicate. You give other people something to respond to. Presentation, you can think about it in terms of like what Buffy looked like, what Starbucks look like, what Cooper look like. And they're choosing these costumes, they're choosing the styling, they're choosing these mannerisms and everything. Um, and it becomes ingrained and socially accepted. And it's a way of identifying yourself and making your um, connections with other people known. It identifies you, it creates social cohesion, and you get a benefit out of doing that but the flip side is it's compliance and it's not going to mean anything unless you're obeying the codes of that particular group. Yeah, so it's a constant, it is true that it's a constant transformation and that's what um, Stuart Hall, the cultural theorist, was talking about, about how when you um, undergo cultural identities, there is the fixed term of the cultural identity, which is from right. the hegemonic um, the dominant culture, but within that, you get your identity uh, by going th through this constant transformation. So it's mm -hmm. like a continuous play of history, culture, and power. You're essentially operating in either survival mode or creative mode. Mm -hmm. um, now, so you're people, you know, when you're limited by location, power, and freedom, you're surviving. And when you have essentially, you know, this openness of location, power and freedom, then then you're you're in a creative state and you it, it can be a good thing but it can be a bad thing. Uh it's like yeah, because I think modernity, like yeah. Modernity and the anxiety that it causes when you have too yeah. much freedom. 
we have to survive every day, but we also, we should approach it with some creativity because that's kind of just breaking down what choices you have and understanding them and giving yourself freedom to explore other choices. No, I think, I think to survive you and as a human, you have to be creative. If, mm-hmm. if you, you know, if you're in the third world and you can't eat or whatever, even in the first world and you can't eat, you have to become creative in order to survive. You know, by any means. Some people might not see it as creativity, but it but is. But look, Serena, we just saw this movie, Hustlers, and oh, it's, yeah. how, it's <laughs> how they became creative after the financial crash. And, you know, whether you're straddling some legal lines at that, um, they are essentially strippers at a club, and everybody was going in and spending all this money, but after the 2008 crash... They, the, the guys were not coming in, so they had to get creative in order to survive because that's uh, in order for the business to survive. And for so that puts it a little into context for me thinking about that's exactly what that is, what you just said, Serena. Um, you, you, have, you have to get creative in order to survive. It's not just, you know, okay, I'm going to survive and that's it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that movie Hustler. It's Hustlers, right? Um, yeah. And- Early on in the movie, and we saw this in Wolf of Wall Street from anyone who's seen that movie, that there are kind of three different groups of people that are working on Wall Street. And the the main character in Hustlers, she breaks it down and she says that there are three types. There's the first one, and they never make a lot of money because they're too afraid to push the boundaries. And then there's the second group, and they're kind of the middle rung because they push the boundaries some, but their comfort level is not that extreme. And then you have the third who've made a lot of money, and they've broken all kinds of rules. But like what we saw in Wolf of Wall Street, you go to jail because you break too many rules, and you end up getting caught. But that really speaks to the idea of power and creativity and what you're willing to play with. And, yeah, I mean... I really liked that breakdown that I, that she presented in Hustlers. And it's always the person who pushes the boundaries the most that gets the special treatment when they go into the club. And yeah, the one that takes the one that takes the risks the most, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, that was a good movie. I I liked I think that's my one of my favorite Jennifer Lopez movies. I maybe oh, my Oh, I heard I heard I've heard good um reviews apparently. Yeah. Apparently it's supposed to be pretty good. So maybe I'll give it a try. That was one thing that did my head in about Wolf of Wall Street was the female perspective. Yeah. Right. It was just lust and it was just the usual kind of, you know, macho kind of perspective of what a woman is. And it was just, that's what did my head in about it. So, okay, I might give it a try. Hustlers, is it out on, uh, in the cinema? Yeah, it just came out in, in the cinemas, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know I mentioned this before, but us is also another example of where I think oh, yes, yes. what happens, the part that has been rejected has been shoved underground. And that's what they suppress um, below, essentially, society or, or whatever. And when you suppress that, it's eventually not going to stay suppressed. And that's, you know, I mean, it's, we want to watch it with Serena, but we don't want to give too much away. But yeah. that... No. that that will happen to you as a person if you suppress the shadow self or the part of you, a part of you 
um, it's not going to go away. It's going to sit there. And the longer you do it, the more it's going to, you know, stew and build and eventually be released. And you might not like that form that comes out. Um, Serena, are there any movies or like pop culture examples that have really shaped and impacted what you think of as identity? I think identity, it is changeable. I mean, of course, when you watch movies, I mean, what I thought when I was younger to kind of what I watch now, you know, it, it constantly changes. I suppose like for many of us, it was like Disney and, you know, and then oh, I saw nice. like a black princess in Disney and then that I resonated with that. And then, yeah, when I started to see a lot more black films, they uh, definitely resonated with me and, and what it gave me was a different perspective and just kind of humanizing rather than it always being a perspective as in always the, you know, the stereotypes that you have of black women and black right. men in, in, in films, especially old, old movies or, you know, old programs from the seventies and stuff. They were always right. disparaging, but, uh, yeah, it's got better. It's got better and better. There's still more to do. But I definitely See, one, relate to some. Because related to what you're saying, let me ask this question. One of the confusions that I had about identity early on was I confused it with agency and subjectivity. And like I thought identity was just me. It's like, that's who I am. And so identity being more of a social face or the social interaction. When you were watching these movies as a child and... It was more disparaging and very non-human, the kind of representations that you were seeing. Did you think it was saying something about the interior of yourself? Because I always made that mistake. This movie is telling me about this interior of myself, and I never put up that filter of understanding, saying, no, this is how other people are going to regard me socially. I always, uh, I mean, I can't speak for the, for a whole community. I'm t speaking no, no, my... just. From my yeah, yeah, from my perspective, I saw those images, and I still do. Um, I know innately that it has nothing to do with me; that that's a construction. It never spoke to who or what I am. What what speaks to me, no matter whether the person's black, white, pink, or a dog, right. if there's an emotion, that's what I identify with: the emotion, the journey, uh, the story, the narrative. It's never. Uh, the characterization of it. It's more the narrative of whoever I meet or wh whatever I watch. That's what I actually relate to and okay. becomes part of my identity. If I see like a stereotype character, right. I don't judge my, it, my instinct is, but why would they put that character together? What is their understanding? Have you always had that kind of perspective on it? Always. Because, for instance, when I was a child and about sexuality and it was presented in such a way in the movie, I wouldn't say, oh, that's just how those characters feel. Within me, it would generate like a type of shame and it would ge really? generate a type of like, yeah, an inferiority that just kind of built up until I had to reject most everything I could think of in total and then start incorporating it back. So it's like, no, I don't have to think of myself in this way. Just because this movie or this television show or even like messages that I was getting from like the church or oh, you know, yes, different yes, sources. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it was very easy for me to internalize what they were saying as like some kind of truth, not understanding, you know, myself, 
the difference between my social identity and how people were going to regard me and how I was on the inside, which is more of my agency and subjectivity. Does that make sense? I confused yeah. that for a long time. I would say it took me a long time to get over that idea. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I completely, I understand exactly what you're on about, but actually it made me less trustworthy of the world, the outside world. So uh, it was like um, what um, Bell Hooks calls like this oppositional gaze. And I understand right, now right. that's what I had as a child is I could see the more and more like media I was socialized to and just being socialized in school and growing up and how you know, white school friends would speak to me. It never, I never took it as right. my own shame. I would see it as, well, this is a messed up world then, if that's how we see each other. I think of it as a more sophisticated understanding. Where did that come from for you? I'm not sure, different? you know. I, I guess it was my parents in a sense, but right. mostly, I don't know, it's just, it's just innate. It's, oh, it, okay. it is, it's just innate. I, it, so it, but in a, but negatively, it kind of cuts me off, even now in a certain sense, is where I don't trust, uh, you know, the world in a sense, the, 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 this Western society um, that I've grew up in. Right. And, and I'm not saying to, and I'm not saying that's a sweep for any color or race or, I mean, just as a whole, because I, I kind of, it shaped my understanding of the world. But right, right. I understand, and I kind of, and that's kind of what's made me so interested in how media speaks to people, because right. it's like building up a false world. And I've always known it's not, it's not true, because it's not how I feel. So, not- Serena, um, I have a question, and it can go for Troy too. But so you have the real world, and you have characters that are portrayed in certain ways in film, and you have the the old generalized way that, you know, it, it would uh, portray um, black people or Hispanics or, you know, uh, in film. And we don't want that anymore, right? Because it's just a caricature of what the what the people are like. But there are also people who are against um, those characters that are true characters and real characters characterized in film in a bad way because it, it even if it's real, it gives... It gives you a bad name. Uh, for example, in Precious, oh, you had saying. you had Monique. She was a crackhead. She was a terrible mother, and I mean, she was in in the, this situation, right? That her life and everything. This character, you wouldn't. I guess you you always want to present yourself the best way possible, but there are some realities in life, and when they're portrayed, um, some might see them as. A, you know, a bad reality to portray, it'll make you look bad or whatever, like for the gay culture as well. Like, you know, if you, if you portray too much sex or too much, this drugs, whatever, which thing are things that are, that happen, um, they will give you a bad name. So what do you guys think of that? Like, yeah, I, think, I think, yeah. Yeah. I think in all, like, um, in all characters, in all narratives, um, in any type of, uh, story there are truths mm-hmm. in in everything but truth i think it that's kind of, the key yeah yeah it changes because when it comes to a narrative then that's perspective that's somebody's perspective and you can play on that in order to engage with an audience so of course there are negatives 
and positives, no matter what social group or community, you know, that we're talking about, you can relate, you can choose to relate and not to relate to certain things. But in the end, because when I talk about the distrust, it's almost a distrust about what's being shown. It doesn't feel like truth. For me, it's like a lack of truth. And it's not about a negative portrayal or 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 a positive portrayal. Um, it's about a truthful portrayal. It can, it's going to have negative things in it and it's going to have positive things in it. That's one of the problems with representation early on. If like, for example, when you saw gay characters, they were always the best friend or they were someone, they were a confidant. Um, and you would see that a lot in movies. And that was like kind of breaking it open. I understand it's like a progression. And that's generally positive, but it left out so much of like what I would go through or maybe, you know, like other people would go through. What anybody would go through. You're not just a friend. You could be the star of a movie. So I don't mind um, negative portrayals or positive portrayals. I love a good villain because, again, if you want to look at that, that triangle, they're in a place, but then they have the freedom to exert power to contest like the overriding narrative that has defined them. And so I like people who are at least willing to openly question and fight against what everyone else accepts as good. So, I don't mind. What, I mean, one, one thing about that is who gets to? Um, is, it, is it more okay if it's a, a, a female of color that is telling this story that portrays this character? Uh, is it okay if it's a gay guy that is, you know, doing this? It, you know, it goes I back to, to who? story. I think it's yeah, but... story that's coming out. Like, if you're, um, if you've been defrauded by a Wall Street person, and you can relate to that, and you're a good director, and you found a character who's like an Asian, you know, fisherman who's also been defrauded by a Wall Street person, then I think that there's this, this story is about being defrauded by a Wall Street person, and you could, if that's what the narrative is, there's an element that you can relate to it. It's good if there's like a strand of identity that you can connect with. Um, I mean, but you know, there are some really hot topic things like race. Um, it, it, it can go yeah, very hot topic that, you know, like you can't say the N word or you can't say, you know, faggot or whatever, essentially. So, like, unless you're. It depends in that on what the group. narrative is. It, yeah. For me, I mean, that's just my take, but it depends on what the narrative is. Well, uh, yeah, I agree with that. It, it definitely depends on the narrative because, in the end, it's about the authenticity of the story. That's what I mean. I mean, I related to certain Disney stories when I was a child that didn't have anything to do with, you know, people of color or, you know, because the thing is that I see myself, I am a human being before I'm anything else. Right. You know, exactly. I relate to everybody on that first point, and that's how I meet people as a human entity before I add, oh, so you're, you're black or you're Asian or you're this or you're American or you're, you know, that to me, that's how I meet people. But what I realize is that not many people think like I do. And that's a disappointment. I have this constant disappointment is that I meet people that judge you straight away because of these tropes or these identities that are placed on you. And then you have to almost, um, you have to fulfill that within people for people to kind of understand you. Yeah, and I mean, I, I agree with what you two are saying, and I'm not trying, I'm just trying to see another side and to, to see like, oh, well, you guys are talking about this perfect magical world where these things wouldn't happen, and I mean, they do happen, and people will call out 
you know, straight actors who are playing gay actors or uh, somebody that's telling a story that's not theirs, the cultural appropriation, this and this over here. And like, it's all happening. And I mean, uh, but that's why that's why authenticity is so important. And uh, to me, the, the films that resonate with me or the narratives that resonate is where it's, it's authentic. And I will go back to, you know, the show that we're talking about, the one that you were watching on YouTube. Oh, um, Tales, Tales of the City. City. Tales of the City. Now, that, yeah. <laughs> I'm not putting it, I don't want to like, <laughs> but because I watched it, like, and it just seemed like in every scene, they wanted to get every gay, trans, black, Check white. every box. <laughs> just check every box within yeah. every single scene. So there's like a hundred people in each scene and they kind of represent, <laughs> I'm telling you, and they represented each person and it was just too much. So it made yeah. it almost too, it, it was just over the top. They were just trying too hard. So that like wasn't, too, exactly. Okay. So yeah. what I'm saying is, 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 is the, is the discernment for me comes down to authenticity as a human before the rest of it, the tropes come into it. Well, yeah, yeah. because you're, you can never make everybody happy. That will never happen ever, ever, ever. Well, that should never be your cause. Your first cause should be, you know, how does it make me feel and why am I telling this story? What's my journey? You know, because people relate to stuff like that, no matter who or where you come from. And that whole notion of authenticity is really interesting. Um, and I found it sort of um, problematic as well because mm -hmm. it becomes um, like a phrase that people tend to throw around. But authenticity is basically compliance. And it's and that happens once. And again, we've ta I talked about this a bit in the presentation performance idea that something gets repeated often enough and it starts to become, it starts to take on this feel of being natural. And authenticity is your ability to make that naturalness evident. Even yes. though it may not be natural and even though it's not natural and nobody's born with that, but you've met this protocol, this social protocol so well that you're not seeing gaps in it or other people can't perceive gaps in it to the extent that they become problematic. And so basically authenticity is protocol. It's social control. And, um, some, and I guess it depends on the group itself, whether or not that's overly, you know, broadly a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but it is interesting that it's basically shaping what you think you're supposed to do. Because you're not born, you're not born with what you think you should do. You learn it. And then people from the outside are gauging whether or not you've learned it well enough. And mm -hmm. that's, that to me, when we speak of like not trusting like the culture at large and not trusting like the way that your brain is being shaped by structures and like forces that you may not even realize that no one is going to be fully cognizant of what these structures and forces are. But the way you feel compelled to act and what you think of as identity are the clues to how you've been conditioned and how you've been rewarded. And I think that's really interesting because that protocol is exactly what the shadow reacts against. It reacts against anything that's considered the rules and what you're supposed to do and the established agenda that's going to provide cohesion. And so it's almost like 
you have to rebel against what identity, what authenticity is and what your conceived notions of authenticity are. Yeah, so to me, like, authenticity, I, I don't see it as compliance. I see it as uh, your true value, your quality to yourself. Because to me, um, like, authenticity is someone telling me their story, like of a painful episode in their life, and that resonating. Authenticity to me is about how someone resonates or how their story resonates. Right. But you know, to me, go on. Conveying a, me a message, conveying something, and it being measured and, and like a value being placed on it. And other people saying, oh, that makes sense from my understanding. But if you didn't do that at all, then you wouldn't have any need for authenticity because you, you're not trying to formulate it into a story or a message. You're just living. That kind of like complicated look at authenticity, it really makes me... When I see like the, the praise of authenticity, like in like new movements in social media or new movements in branding and all of that kind of thing, it's like part of it is just BS because well, yeah. all it is, is like it's implicated, it's compliance with social control because it could be good or it could be bad, but they wouldn't have to worry about being authentic. They just do what they want to do. And trying to be authentic is the first step to not being authentic because you incorporating a social comparison like right off the bat and if you didn't have the social life around you you wouldn't have anything to compare it's a it's a paradox but authenticity is the first step in being inauthentic because you wouldn't worry about it in the first place yeah i think i, I know what you mean yeah i mean that's why i'm so like suspicious of politicians and and anything that they do because I mean, we've seen shows and, and movies and the, the way that things are portrayed sometimes and even documentaries and you can see how like something can be, um, you know, you can have a panel of people telling you, don't wear that because that makes me happy. Like every single decision that you do, every ad, like every tweet, every move you make, it, I question the authenticity. Even the, I know like a lot of them are authentic, but when you're getting something out of it, you know, <laughs> I'm always suspicious about like how authentic somebody can be, especially somebody in politics. Um, I mean, yeah, Rick, like that, that triangle that you presented, it was freedom, power, and location. And yeah. authentic authenticity is just putting a stamp of approval on that. So in the, lo the right location, you acted the right way with a certain amount of freedom and somebody yeah. approved. Uh, it becomes an approval process. Yeah, but, but I also think that there's a difference between authenticity and being authentic. Because authentic, the definition is acceptance or belief or conforming to something. Right. But authenticity, that's different because that's like having a quality of being... Re being it, it, yeah, it's about quality or being true. But right. I understand what you're saying. It's about gauging it. It's about someone gauging your authenticity and telling you whether it's authentic or not. To me, sometimes authenticity just seems like a costume that kind of like bundles something up, packages it, and makes it like, okay, everybody can get in line with it. And it's because, you know, back in the 80s, the 90s, or whatever, like white culture was just, you know, it was not 
open the question that much. And sure, you could say it was authentic or not, but it didn't really matter. The fact is, like, what was possible for white culture in terms of media content disempowered a lot of people. And the whole label of authenticity just didn't even matter. Yeah, that that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting you saying that in the 70s and 80s or maybe white culture, people would have felt that's what's authentic because I guess, you know, a lot of people in Britain and in America have this idea of nostalgia and maybe they believe, you know, that oh was authentic. God. That was Especially authentic to now. them. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that was a time where things were authentic to them and things are going completely, you know, they, they believe things are going completely out of kilter. Yeah. which is driving their um, decisions to look for Make America Great Again. And yeah, but that's not, that's not a new story. We're, we're re-watching Downton Abbey, and they're talking about the 1800s or, you know, the 17, whatever, like the early 1800s, like, oh, the time when, you know, when it was so simple and we didn't have weekends or electricity or whatever. They're looking to go back to those times when you would hear stories about butlers going up with the house and, you know, uh, will we ever get stories like that again? We're losing that old world. Like every time that there's a loss, there's a change, you always have the people trying to hold on or trying to go back to that. And yeah, in some cases it's impossible and it fades away. Authenticity is connected to framework and frameworks become outdated. And they, be, they become revealed as problematic and unfair and unhealthy, even for the people who are really believing in it. So I think for next week, since we've talked about authenticity so much, I think I might start to look at what I consider, what I've just accepted as authentic and start figuring out how that has given rise to problems with identity. Okay. Yeah, I think I may have jumped the gun a bit then. <laughs> well, thank you guys. And okay. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. And let's sign off. Bye. Okay, bye. 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 Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We put it out weekly. And follow us on social media. We're on every platform. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're everywhere.